Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilley with you. And if you are loving The Briefing but you haven't subscribed yet, love you to hit that button in your podcast app. Join The Briefing family on the reg. In this episode of The Briefing, um, we're going into part two on gut health with Antoinette where she looks at the billion-dollar industry that sprung up around gut health. Often these products don't necessarily meet that probiotic bar, if you like. It needs to be in that kind of adequate amount and a proven microorganism strain that has generated kind of benefit. Yeah, so you're going to find out if we're being fooled by some of the extraordinary health claims that these probiotic products make. That is our briefing part two on gut health. First rounder Patrick is with me for today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 3rd of November. Dozens of rallies were held across the country overnight to remember Cassius Turvey. The 15-year-old was allegedly murdered last month while walking home from school. Cassius, we love you, man. We hope that you heard that. I'm pretty sure you did. He represents all our kids, all our community. So there were thousands of people on the streets last night. There were around 3,000 in Sydney. The vigils were in every capital city and in lots of regional towns and remote communities. There was also one in LA. A lot of people carried candles, wore black T-shirts with the teenager's face and Forever 15 and Kids Matter on them. Yeah, and more than $600,000 has been raised through a GoFundMe for his family. And Rihanna, you were actually at the vigil in Brisbane last night. Yeah, I was. And uh, it was a pretty big turnout, more than a thousand people, according to the reports that I read. I mean, I was in the crowd and I'm never very good at uh, determining how many people are ever there. And I think one of the things that really struck me was uh, the number of young people, uh, high school students getting up and having their say and their piece, um, mm. which I think really showed just how much this has affected the community. And that's why I was there. I mean, this is a collective uh, mourning. This is not just happening to someone isolated in Western Australia. This is something that the entire community was feeling and something that we needed to do as part of our healing was to attend these vigils. And how would you describe the mood? It was obviously a very sombre move, but it was also a very vocal uh, event as well with lots of people interacting with the speakers that got up last night. Um, there was a lot of media there. And I think one of the things that struck me, Tom, was a lot of young people being interviewed, being photographed by journalists, but I didn't see a lot of parents being asked if there was permission granted. When you're interviewing people that are under 18, you have to ask for permission. So that was just one thing that really struck me. And the woman at the centre of the AFL Hawthorne racism investigation has withdrawn from the process. Um, Amy, not her real name, alleges the club forced her then partner, who was a Hawks player, to leave her when she was pregnant and also alleges the club told her to have an abortion. Yeah, in a statement, her lawyers claim the AFL ignored her when establishing the framework for the investigation, leaving her no option but to walk away. In her statement, she's also um, supplied two artworks which make the point really strongly about how she feels about the situation. So they're actually incredible artworks. One of them has a picture of what appears to be her and you can see the baby in her womb um, with a red love heart on her chest. There's tears coming down her face and her partner standing next to her, a muscly guy with some white hands that appear to be pulling him away um, towards a symbol at the top with four AFL posts where it says the dream. And then there's another artwork 
where there's two brooms um, sweeping several words under a rug. So pretty clear symbolism there. And those words include investigation, reports, lies, bullying, intimidation. So she clearly wants to make a statement and she really is with these artworks, but she doesn't want to do it within this framework that the AFL has set up. Yeah, and I can understand that. I mean, why go through reliving your trauma all over again if you feel that the process um, might lack independence? Yeah, or won't Um, achieve anything. So, you know, I understand why there are people that are walking away when they weren't included or from what I understand weren't included in the setting up of these terms of reference around this investigation. Well, it's believed that Amy is the second alleged victim to walk away from this investigation Um, while the coaches at the centre of the review have both been cleared to resume work with the clubs they work for now. Gambling ads will soon be looking different. The tagline Gamble Responsibly is being dropped, replaced with lines like Chances Are You're About to Lose and What Are You Prepared to Lose? Set a deposit limit? Yeah, so there's lines like that. Plus, um, they'll tell you, you know, how to get in touch with the gambling helpline. It doesn't go far enough, according to some people who want gambling ads completely banned, but here's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, explaining why they're not going that far. Not trying to impose uh, a complete nanny state solution, but trying to to warn people that it can be an issue and to give them pause for thought. Yeah, Anthony Albanese there on the project, and these changes are set to come into effect in April. Yeah, I don't know about these. I'll read you a few more of them, Rana. See if this would stop you from gambling. Think. Is this a bet you really want to place? Um, Here's another one. What are you prepared to lose? Set a deposit limit. What are you really gambling with? I reckon these are going to have no impact. What do you think? It's a hard one, isn't it? Better than gamble responsibly. That that definitely wasn't going to do much. Yeah, and I think it goes a little way further, but um, yeah, will it go far enough? Who knows? But I mean, I think it's interesting that there is this House of Representatives um, inquiry into online gambling and its impacts on those experiencing gambling harm and that they are accepting submissions of recommendations from people and organisations um, until mid-November. And here's a just a crazy story, really. Investigators are still trying to work out how five lions escaped their enclosure at Sydney's Taronga Zoo yesterday. Did breach the containment fence. We don't have the exact details of how and why that occurred. That is very much a very um, focus of our incident response. I bet it is. Yeah, that's Saronga's Executive Director, Simon Duffy, there. And it happened at about 6.30 yesterday where zookeepers noticed that four lion cubs, along with their dad, Ato, were outside of the main enclosure. Yeah, so this is 6.30am and within 10 minutes, a code... 10 minutes sounds like a long time, actually. But anyway, within 10 minutes, a code one was issued and there were people staying nearby the enclosure in in tents. So this is a program they have where you you can camp near the enclosure called Roar and Snore. Um, You can go to sleep listening to the lions. Um, Maybe they got a bit louder than people expected. So these people, once the code one was issued, were told to run. We realised, okay, something's outside. What is it? And they said, oh... It's the lion, so we're like, ooh, scary. Yeah, visitor Magnus Perry. And I think, really, Tom, they got, they definitely got their money's worth. Come on. Oh, absolutely. I think, that, you know, you should have to pay extra for that experience. It kind of worked out well, though. The lions got past their enclosure fence, but they, they stayed within the six-foot-high fence that stops the public getting close to the enclosure. So 
people were still safe, just. Um, four of the lions returned themselves within three hours. Still a very long time, um, except one of the cubs stayed out and had to be tranquilized, but is apparently doing well. Yeah, no, I, I think these people got a good deal, and um, I think this is great publicity for Taronga Zoo. I think more people want to come because they want that primal experience. You know, it's one step closer to a South African safari. Yeah, and look, if you want anything tested, really, I mean, I've got two cats. Uh, they test everything. Uh, so I would say big cats probably doing the same as my cats. Yeah, exactly. Just keep an eye on your enclosure. Any holes developing, you need to stay on top of it. All right, Rana, we'll catch you again tomorrow. Antoinette is about to take us into part two of Gut Health. So globally, the kombucha and probiotics market is worth billions. And it's also rapidly growing as people spend big on wellness and gut health. In part two of our three-part series on gut health, I'll be exploring if we're being fooled by some of the extraordinary health claims these products make, or maybe there's a tiny nugget of truth in the proclamations and it's just been greatly hyped. Jordan Stanford from the University of Wollongong is a dietitian with a PhD investigating dietary interventions to improve gut health. Thanks for your time, Jordan. I want to start with the current state of our guts because there has been a multi-generational loss of microbes in recent generations. And, and do we know if it's mainly because of antibiotic use or our diets or the cleanliness of our homes, exposure to chemicals and things like that? Or is it a mixture of all of the above? That's a great question. I think it is a very much a mixture of all the above, as you said. So um, the overuse of antibiotics is not great because that essentially wipes out um, not only those kind of bad guys in terms of the microbes or bacteria in the gut, but also the good guys. And particularly given that I have, I guess, an interest given that I'm a dietitian in diet, obviously really refined foods. So things that we kind of typically think of this westernized diet, you know, high processed, high sugar, high fat, um, you know, low fiber diets are often not feeding our bacteria because obviously healthy foods that we consider like vegetables, um, seeds, nuts, whole grains, they have essentially what we call prebiotics, which is really a fancy word for the food that these bacteria or microorganisms like to feed off as well. And do we have an answer as to why we suffer from, it seemed to be suffering at higher rates from a bunch of chronic diseases, things like asthma or like every second kid at my kid's school has a food allergy. You know, I have an autoimmune disorder. I mean, who doesn't? Is this our gut unable to do its job? Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of people that are suffering from more chronic diseases. And this is, I guess, an area of interest where this space is really evolving in terms of scientific research. So we are at the cusp of kind of understanding that there's a lot more to learn um, because it's really a relatively new area. But what we do know is that there are definitely interactions with our microbes because our microbes actually provide more functions than our human genome. And they obviously are interacting with our environment, including diet, our lifestyle, exercise and so on. So it's not completely clear, but this is really where our focus is. And I can definitely um, consider that a lot of these conditions are rising, partly because of the, the microbiota and how it's changing. 
So there is this massive multi-billion dollar industry that's pledging to to fix our guts. Let's start with probiotics. Do they work (laughs) for who and for what conditions? Yeah. So let me just quickly define what we consider probiotics. So probiotics, the formal kind of agreed upon definition is live microorganisms that when administered in appropriate doses or appropriate amounts have been shown scientifically to um, induce or lead to a health kind of benefit for us as humans. The really important kind of takeaway is that not all probiotics are equal. They're very um, specific strains that you need to look for in order to generate that kind of health benefit. So there's not much research on, I know that a lot of people that want it is for just kind of general health. And I guess Mm. that's an area that we're trying to explore a little bit more on because often we find that they're usually researched in typical conditions. For example, you know, they've been shown to reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea. They've helped to manage digestive discomfort, eczema in infants, um, and those kinds of things. So not necessarily well-researched in kind of healthy people. So when you're looking at, I guess, a probiotic, there are a few things to consider. The first one is to making sure that the strain that they have on it. So if you turn around on the back of a probiotic jar or even a uh, food product, often they will list those things as often with a trademark um, in the back. Mm. Um, And you do want adequate dosage, like I mentioned. So you need to research that. Yeah, what is adequate dosage? Because I I pick up those things, they're like 6,000 strains of blah, 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 and 1,200 this, and I have no idea what it means. Yeah, yeah. So a good rule of thumb, and it is a rule of thumb, like I mentioned, there's specific dosages per specific strains, but usually we're looking for about a billion CFU, which is usually seen on the back of the pack, which stands for culinary forming units. 1 billion CFUs per 100 grams is a good way to start. There's a really good website for consumers. It's called ISAPP. So it stands for International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics. And they have really good, easy to understand kind of consumer information on probiotics and as well as fermented foods and other things like that. So some people I know take probiotics daily as part of their health routine. Is this just a super expensive indulgence? Um, look, I don't want to, I guess, <laughs> uh, shut down people if they're finding definitely a benefit. I mean, there's not to say that there isn't a benefit to some of the things that they are taking. I, I guess what I would say is if they're feeling better, for example, if they're having you know less digestive problems, so bloating, good bowel movement, feeling less constipated, for example, then certainly it might be a good thing to continue. Is it necessary for the general public? Not at all. There's obviously Mm. lots of things that they could do in terms of diet and lifestyle that can generate the same benefit. And what about kombucha? Because it's, it's no longer just Byron Bay yogis drinking it. It's now like stocked in pretty much all the petrol stations. Yeah, kombucha is definitely growing. So for those that don't know, it's kind of a slightly fizzy fermented tea beverage and it's usually made from 
tea with sugar and what we call a SCOBY, which stands for a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. So these kind of yeast and um, bacteria convert the sugars to alcohol and then to kind of organic acids, which give that sweet, sour vinegar kind of taste. It is important to note that not all fermented um, foods or beverages, which include kombucha, they are made with these kind of live microorganisms in order to produce this product, but they're not always kind of retain the probiotics or the um, beneficial microbes. So remember, often these products don't necessarily um, meet that probiotic bar, if you like, where when I mentioned before, it needs to be in that kind of adequate amount and a proven microorganism strain that has generated kind of benefit, if that makes sense. And you mentioned fermented food. There are some tried and tested or long used in some Eastern cultures, things like kimchi and kefir. Uh, are people better off doing their own, DIYing it at home? As long as they're very careful and maybe have experience, there is caution to doing those things. So as you mentioned, probably more so being cleanly, very, um, I guess, sterile with their processes, using if they're saying, for example, kombucha or kefir, making sure that the starter cultures, so as I mentioned, that scoby or in kefir's case, the kefir grains are from reputable sources because obviously you don't want to start growing something that has microorganism that might be uh, negative to your health. Um, and again, making sure when you're doing those things because of there is a risk of growing something that you're not necessarily sure what's in there. So making sure that there's no mould or anything other kind of funny that's going on when you are doing things at home. You've mentioned that you know, the research is growing um, and it's kind of an interesting space as we examine the gut and responses to treating a whole bunch of um, diseases. Do you think the research is moving fast enough or it's funded well enough? Because I imagine, um, and this is with my sceptical journo hat on, if we are able to discern and find out that a lot of our issues can be solved by things like kefir and good eating and exercise, that it will slow down pharmacological responses to diseases or challenge them? Oh, absolutely. Um, if it, Regarding your question about funding and things, yeah, I mean, always we're always looking for more funding and resources in order to grow the area. Um, it is a very difficult space because there's gaps in the whole process. For example, a lot of these microorganisms, we're learning new ones kind of every day um, that we didn't know before. So often we're not even sure what we're looking for in some cases. So as I mentioned, you know, these fermented products that have been around for, you know, 2000 years um, and may have a benefit. A lot of these microorganisms that grow within them, we might not even know. They're very difficult to study because it's difficult to quantify. Each batch might be different, for example. So these are some of the challenges within that area. The other thing is these microorganisms, they have a lot of species. So we group them into kind of larger groups and then each kind of, it would be like people if we're grouping people in a, in a kind of category, but each of us all have different skills and um, strengths, weaknesses and so on. So it's often really hard to kind of do this research, um, but definitely we'll be getting there. And I, I do think already it is challenging a lot of the things that we traditionally would have thought, uh, you know, rethinking how we 
live our life, for example, you know, as I mentioned, we're really moving towards that increasing plant-based diets and not necessarily being vegan or vegetarian, but really including those plant foods that are healthy for us as they have those foods for these microorganisms. We also know that certain medications, you know, overuse can also cause damage to the gut microbiome or these microbiota. So these are all things that we're now aware of that we didn't necessarily know before. That was Jordan Stamford from the University of Wollongong. She is a dietitian with a PhD investigating dietary interventions to improve gut health. And things are definitely shifting in this space. And I know that, you know, my folks used to pop antibiotics like they were smarties. And I know now doctors and even the general public are a lot more concerned about their overuse and um, more reluctant to take them unless they're absolutely necessary. And it really is so very boring and predictable, but it's eating well and moving that can solve a whole host of our issues. Of course, not for everyone. Things like acute mental illnesses and progressive diseases, they're not going to be solved by eating more kale. But there is a lot of research being done in this space, and I can't help myself with this dorky pun, but I've got a gut feeling we'll see big changes to mainstream healthcare in the next couple of decades. Listener.